Hi, and welcome to Found. I'm your host, Dara Etherington, and I'm joined by my co-host and platonic life partner. Jordan Crook. Oh, I'm so honored to be that. Thank you. That's right. Yeah, we did have a fake wedding in Las Vegas, actually, at one point. And, um, we tell people we're married all the time, and people are very confused about it. But uh, They, like, believe it, which is so yeah. funny to me. I mean, I guess if you tell someone that you're married to someone, they're going to believe Why it. Why would they but... not believe you? Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, anyways, that's neither here nor there, because this is a show where we talk to a different founder every week all about their experience of building a startup. Jordan, what did you think about our conversation so far? One of the cool things is that we meet these founders right in a, in the midst of it as well. We're not talking to someone about what happened 10 or 15 years ago. We not only get a look at some of the stuff that's gone wrong in, in the past couple of years or some of the big moments that have gone right, but we're hearing about what they're actually tackling right now in this very moment. We've gotten a look into, into how they're feeling as people. And I maybe say that too often, but I think it's something that's overlooked in our industry particularly, is how people are actually feeling. The pandemic was great for that. It said, we asked each other, how are you? And we actually got real answers. And that is carrying on, even though it's a year later, that is carrying on with the Found Podcast. And I love that. So this week we spoke to Kathy Hanoon, who is a co-founder at Dandelion Energy. So Dandelion Energy does geothermal energy, which uh, I had like a vague understanding of when we went into this episode, but... I was an expert on it, so I felt... Yeah, Jordan consults in that industry. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) (laughs) She did a great job of of telling us, you know, all about kind of the business she's in and why this is the time to be in it. Um, And also, you know, we got into her background, which includes uh, stints at Google and at Google X. Uh, where she spent many years and worked on a lot of kind of like those moonshot projects, right? So it's it's a really interesting perspective and it's one um, that I think is unique in our set of conversations so far in that, you know, it comes from a place of someone who is doing really exciting, interesting things at one of the biggest companies, uh, you know, one of the most well-capitalized companies in the world. Yeah. So, and, and yet still making the decision like, Hey, I want to leave and do this thing on my own. Cause I think it's worth doing. It goes to show how much timing and like your life experiences goes into starting a company and I think origin story is is one of the best pieces of learning about what a company can actually be is figuring out where where it came from. And she did a great job explaining that. So So here it is. This is our conversation with Kathy Hanoon from Dandelion Energy. We're joined today by Kathy Hanoon, who is co-founder at Dandelion, which does geothermal energy for your home. Uh, so welcome, Kathy. Thank you so much. Great to have you. Great to have you. You've already gone over my head, by the way. So <laughs> it just the intro. <laughs> just in the, we're already way over my head. So. Well, let's get started there then, because I mean, I have a friend who's like using geothermal to power their house in Prince Edward County out here in in cold Ontario. But um, so he's told me a little bit but i don't know that much daryl's so being really modest he's like a science whiz and i literally know nothing. that is not so true kid gloves no. please most people don't know that much about geothermal heating and cooling so when you put solar on a house you're substituting grid electricity for electricity from the sun like we're pretty familiar with that what i think a lot of people don't think about is that for many houses 
certainly throughout Canada and other cold places like the Northeast U.S., the Midwest U.S., a lot, most of the energy, like the huge majority of energy used in homes doesn't come from the grid to begin with. It comes from fuels that are used for heating, like fuel oil, propane, or natural gas. And so even when you put solar in your house, you're still using those fossil fuels to do the majority of your energy in the home for heating. What Dandelion does is we actually install what's called a geothermal heat pump that harvests renewable energy from the ground to provide heating to your home. Uh, These heat pumps, like all heat pumps, run on electricity, but that electricity is just used to move renewable heat from one place to another. So they're actually very inexpensive to run. Um, And it's a great way to just get to much less emissions coming from heating buildings. I am curious, like, so what... You mentioned, you know, in Canada, um, it's more viable or or can be effective there. So, like, does it matter kind of kind of the the climate or the the yeah, like the local weather or does that affect it at all? Mm -hmm. The beauty of geothermal is that because these systems, so it basically looks like a furnace in your house that sits where your furnace used to be. And then that heat pump is connected to ground loops. Um, which are plastic pipes buried under the yard. And because those ground loops are under the ground in your yard, they're not really affected by the outdoor air temperature. So when you get deep enough, the ground is kind of the same temperature year round, doesn't matter what temperature it is outside. And that's where that system is drawing heat from. So the reason it works really well in cold climates is that it is isolated from the weather. So you're able to pull heat from a relatively warm place, the ground, even when it's very cold. So it's not that it wouldn't work in a mild climate. It would technically work. It's just going to be less advantageous because you just don't need that much heating to begin with, and it's easier to get if it's not that cold out. Like you could pull it from the air, for example, using an air source heat pump. Can you talk to us a little bit about like how you like install or scale? Like what's the distribution on something like this? Because it does seem relatively like intensive to be getting into the ground under someone's home. Yeah. And how deep do you have to get? Right. You you mentioned deep. Yeah. So we go 300 to 500 feet deep. That's so deep. That's like a really (laughs) long way. I will clarify that we're not going under the home, but next to the home. So in the yard. Mm-hmm. So there, that's slightly simpler, but still, still it is quite an undertaking. And when we launched the company, we recognized that operational complexity and we thought, you know, let's be a technology company. Let's make a heat pump. We'll make all the tools to do the design, like the software analysis that you have to do to know how much ground loop to put in, how big your heat pump needs to be, all of that. And we'll provide it as a service to HVAC companies and drillers that oh. are already out there so that they can do this. Uh, it was a nice vision. It clearly <laughs> failed immediately. You know, like it was oh. just um, unfortunately the industry was so new. And so um, was it hard to just sell through them? Like, were they just not pushing it hard enough? Is that what it was like? Because you have this middleman who's used to like all the existing relationships. You so know? that was definitely a problem. So the first problem, which you've just mentioned, is we want to sell this product on savings. So our value proposition is geothermal heat pumps are so inexpensive to run because they're so efficient that even if you pay more up front, you're going to make that money back really quickly, like all renewable energy, right? That tends to be the proposition. And so we wanted to sell on savings. Like, look, if you switch from fuel oil to this, 
you're going to come out ahead. But that's just not how the HVAC industry tends to sell things. They sell right. on feature sets. So that was problem number one is just like the sales model we we wanted was not natural or just not an easy um, fit. Problem number two is just like we had very limited control over the customer experience because we were having other other companies go onto people's yards, into people's houses. And we had very little control at the end of the day over how those interactions went, especially when we were uh -huh. such a small company, right? Um, and problem number three, I would say, is just like we couldn't learn very quickly because if something goes wrong and it's not your company or your people that have done the work, you're at the mercy of sort of a game of telephone. And right. it was not a very fun game of telephone, to say the least. So something goes wrong, the customer is like, I hate this. And you have no idea why, because because right. it's like a blame game, you know, right. to some extent. And so we we learned really quickly after launching, you know, if we're going to actually do this, we actually have to get in to the business of having warehouses and installers and drillers and feet on the ground. Very operationally complex, not what we wanted to do, but <laughs> what it looked like it would take to make the company work. So we made the decision to switch. Did that mean that you also had to like fundraise pretty quickly? Because that definitely changes the like cost model of the company. Like, you know, once the decision is made, it's like, okay, our runway is different. Our operation is completely different. Like, what did that mean for you guys? Practically it absolutely speaking? did. It, me it meant that we would need more capital. And it also meant that our pitch would be a little, in some ways, a little more difficult. But I think, you know, one thing that helps us is that even though when you imagine like, okay, we need drill rigs and warehouses and installers, it is certainly like way above and beyond what a typical uh, Silicon Valley startup would need. However, when you look at the actual economics of the business, the capital required is actually a very, it's a very de minimis amount compared to the mm -hmm. revenue that capital can generate. So the, the business fundamentals were still fine. It still worked. It was just right. about like retooling the story and our own, honestly, just like our own coming to terms with the type of company that we had started and what it would require of us. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Cause it would be, you know, as long as it's still there, as long as the metrics are still venture backable, I think you're, you're probably like, okay, good. This is good because otherwise you don't want to be all of a sudden I'm in a so like this isn't the type of industry that I wanted to be in at all, right? But it, I mean, I, I want to get back to, and I, I, uh, this is great, but I would like to go further back and talk about your your founding because we didn't yeah. address that. But like, <laughs> that's what the podcast is about. Well, it's good. It's good to flip <laughs> it around that way and go backwards. But like, yeah. I, I, so it sounds like you were, you had a very different idea when you started out, right? Like, and and I would love to talk about like what you were doing before that that led you to this conclusion too, right? Because I know you spent a lot of time at Google X, which uh, is really interesting. So can you can you talk us through kind of those early days and and how you got interested in this to begin with? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, my first the first project I led at Google X was called Foghorn, and it was a attempt to pull CO2 out of seawater, combine it with renewable hydrogen to make carbon neutral fuels. And it sounds, um, you know, complicated. <laughs> that's, that's X, is it? <laughs> we did do it. Like literally we went to the sea and got like a container of seawater and brought it back to the lab 
and extracted CO2 from it and combined it with hydrogen and made methanol. So like the technology wow. works. It does. It was just um, certainly the crux of the problem was making it work cost effectively. And right. <laughs> we uh, after, you know, about a, a few years um, of trying to find any avenue to doing that, we we concluded, you know, in the, in the nearish term, given the given the level of investment this would require, we're just not, we, we don't, we can't recommend that we go forward with this because it's just so unlikely that we would end up with a fuel that we could sell commercially. Can I just chime in and ask like how that actually felt as a person? Because you spend like years working on something and you realize and you like it, the point and, you, like, and it, it works. works. You did it. Like you actually achieved it, but then like money gets in the way, right? Like, which is like, that's just, a truth of life, but like it has to, you have to feel something in that moment too, right? Certainly like you are, the facts and the reality um, that's coming out of our investigation and our experiments are clouding this, what was such a bright and exciting vision that we could be the ones to make sea fuel, you know, like how amazing would that have been? So certainly, yes, it was disappointing to have reality step in and tell us, nope, not today. But <laughs> on the other hand, I think at that time in my career, I was still, I was just so excited to even be at X, getting to work on something like Sea Fuel. And I was learning so much and my team was so great. And I just, um, how, how special is it to have a job like that? Right. Especially yeah. for, for me at that time, like i I didn't necessarily feel that I deserved that job. <laughs> you know, I like had been um, there had certainly been some luck in addition to some hard work on my part to get there. And so I was really still reveling in that a little bit, to be honest, and, and just appreciating everything I was learning, even if it led to this negative conclusion that no, probably not in terms of sea fuel itself. I was, though, ready to do work that actually translated to the real world. Like, I think right. at that time in my career, I had been at X for about five years, and I had been mostly doing work like what I described, where we were evaluating ideas. And just by the very nature of what X is, almost all of them aren't going to work because sure, you're just yeah. like going after ideas that are unlikely to work. But if they do, it could be amazing. And I was just ready to like take an idea and actually I wanted it to, I wanted to implement it. And that's really when geothermal heat pumps came to my attention. It was through Google has these like basically um, email lists that at least at that time, at least at that time where you could sign up if you were just interested in different things. So there's like one for parents at Google and one for like Googlers who ski, I'm guessing. I don't know if that's real, really one, but it probably is. And there was one that was about people who are interested in energy. And so I was on that one. And a software engineer based in the New York office wrote this extremely long email to that list um, about why geothermal heat pumps were the number one thing that the U.S. could invest in that would make the biggest and most profound difference to the U.S.'s energy future. It was like this very lofty, but like well-researched and like clearly an expert had wrote it, but the claims yeah. it was making seemed very uh, large. So it piqued my interest, especially since my job was to find good opportunities in energy. So it was like, okay, 
maybe I will learn more about these geothermal heat pumps. Um, and that's what kind of set me on my path. That's amazing. It's it, like you don't hear that much about it, but it is. I, I experienced there were it was not to that degree, but there were similar things um, in my brief time at Apple. And it's it's very interesting when that happens and you're like, oh, like there's like a sort of like a it's almost like a feels academic, right? Like it's like a sh- there's a sharing of ideas in a forum where people recognize like, oh, you know, we we're all doing good work daily and we have like our own focuses that we're passionate about but we're also all fairly intelligent people and we have these other things we're passionate about and interested in and why not share that with this group right and i think that's one of the 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 bigger things uh, the nicer things about um some of the large technology companies that you don't actually hear that much about uh on the outside on the day-to-day right And and it can generate amazing things like like yeah, people starting their own companies and and trying to make these ideas real. So that's really cool. But um, yeah, so from there, you were just like, I got to go do this or? Well, it wasn't that fast. I I started, this email came in and I like started my journey of learning what geothermal was uh, while I was still working on Foghorn. So this all happened before we wrapped up that project. So it was a slow burn. You know, I was just like trying to learn more about it, trying to understand what about, you know, I met Bob, the guy that wrote that email. He to this day, he's one of the most he he's left Google now and he's just one of the most important advocates for geothermal technology. He's done really amazing work in New York. Um, but I met with him and just like really tried to parse what what in this email seemed true to me, like what which of it, which parts of it seemed real. Mm-hmm. And then was this actually a technology play, right? Because it could be, you know, X is always looking for like, what could we do? What businesses could we start? But they have to be technology businesses. And yep. it's never really clear at the beginning if that's the right tool. But it, I mean, unlike most ideas where the more I would look into them, the more it would become clear all the reasons that it probably, you know, why it wasn't a thing. Um, mm-hmm. This one, it just, I got, I got pulled into it. I got swept up in it. It was like the more I learned, the more it seemed like all the things holding this back were superficial. And that was really exciting. And so when we decided not to continue with Foghorn, I had this very obvious uh, thing to turn my attention to. Yeah, it was like, okay, well, I have some time now so I can really go full speed ahead on geothermal heat pumps and figuring out what we do there. You mentioned like, when you were at X feeling like a touch of maybe imposter syndrome, right? And like, you know, I was I was talking to someone recently about like what it takes to be a great founder. And there's like this weird mix of like, kind of like ego and narcissism to believe that you're the person to solve a problem, but also like humility and kind of like paranoia also as well. And like, when you're, you know, you had come from X where you were on this team at this massive corporation and you're about to like go off on your own, right? Like for the first time and like do do it yourself. Like, can you talk about like, did you, were you nervous or were you just like more so excited that you had found the right problem for you to solve or like, where was your head at? Yeah, I was really nervous <laughs> and I was, I was excited about the problem. Like I, I think it's just rare to find something that is in a huge market, it could have a huge impact. Um, and the incentives were aligned. So like if you can really, if you can really offer a renewable energy project product that costs less than fuel fuel and um, 
yeah, I don't know. There's just a lot of elements of it that seemed great to me. Um, but yeah, I did not know how to be like, I didn't really have that many examples of founders in my life. I didn't, I was very comfortable at Google. I knew everyone. I like knew how to get things done there. I was in, I was sort of like in my comfort zone and, um, I was very aware that stepping out of that comfort zone would be really hard. And, um, it wasn't clear to me. Here's the thing. It's like, I knew in my heart of hearts, I was going to do it. Because if you have the opportunity to start a company you're really believing in and you get to spin it out of Google X, it's just like I I knew I wanted to be the type of person that would do that. Yeah. But then when I actually thought about everything that meant for me, <laughs> I was a little apprehensive as well. Um, but to your comment, I think it's true. Like I think there is a mix of humility and ego. And I relate to that a lot. Like, I think for me, I have, a, I have a core belief that I can, I can pretty much go after any problem that I set my mind to. Like, I, re- if I'm going to be really honest with you, I feel like, yes, I could, I don't, I don't see a lot of limits to like what types of problems I can go after or what projects I can try to undertake. But I also don't feel like that's unique to me. I feel like most people, or at least like a lot of people, could do that as well. I think a lot of what holds us back is just like that fear, you know? Mm-hmm. But but when you listen to a lot of founder stories, they're like, and then I just went to the library and I learned about how to do XYZ thing. And then I like started doing it, you know? And I think, I think um, in fact, it's kind of easy to become an expert at one level in almost any topic because so few people are focused on, for example, geothermal heat pumps, right? Like there just aren't that many of us. It's a very small pond. So if you spend all your time obsessed with it, you can get up to speed fairly quickly, which isn't to say I'm not constantly learning every day. And like it does take a lot longer to become a deep expert, but I think you can Uh learn a lot to, to have an impact very quickly. Well, and there's two sides to the coin, right? Because you have to be an expert in geothermal energy, but you also have to learn how to be an expert as a leader of a company, right? Like a business expert. And those are two probably, I would assume, very different things. I'm so Um, glad you raised that. Can you be the bridge that connects the different stakeholders? Like that's kind of what leadership is to me, is like, you know, what I what I feel I brought to geothermal or to Dandelion, it wasn't that I was ever going to be the most, you know, the deepest geothermal expert or like the number one, you know, like even founder, right? By any stretch of the imagination, it was just like I was a person that was willing to go in front of VCs and make this case and connect with other talented people I could bring in with the company and know enough about geothermal to know what to focus us all on. And it's like that combination. So it's like, uh, I think one of the hard things about being a founder is that I've just constantly felt out of my depth in like every topic Um, for the past four years I've been doing this. But but then you bring the right person in who is an expert and you build the team that way and you're sort of you you gain momentum as you go. And I think that's like an important thing to share also just with other founders, because I think and, and not just founders, but just people. I think everyone experiences some level 
of imposter syndrome on a regular basis and just like pushing it away and and being willing to like ask questions that you don't know the answer to, right? Like those two things are like, that, that can really stop someone's success. But if you're willing to ask about what you don't know and you're willing to say like, no, I, I, I've been a tech crunch for 10 years and I feel imposter syndrome every day still, <laughs> you know? You, you seem to have a confidence that underlies it, right? So you like, can you like fall back on that and be like, well, you know what? Like I know that if I dedicate myself to it, I'll be able to do it. Like it seems like you have that pretty unflaggingly or, or is that not the case? Do you have like, plenty of moments of self-doubt and like well maybe i can't do this or or is it more like no i know like this is the type of person i am and if i and if i focus on this area like i can get through it i do feel like if i focus on it i can get through it but i think i've come to that understanding through practice and in in small ways too it's like um when i was a master's student like taking a class that was too hard for me or I perceived it right. to be too hard for me and then like getting by, you know, and it's like you just put yourself in enough situations where you're in the deep end and then you realize like you never drown, like you you find a way out. And I think you do practice that just as much as you would practice anything. And mm-hmm. so now when I'm thrust into that deep end, I'm not panicked. And I think that's that's really like so much of what it is. It's just like, can you keep your wits about you and not panic? Um, but yeah, I was at a board meeting for Dandelion yesterday and I was just marveling at like, at this point in the company's life, so many of the people around the table are so much, so accomplished, um, like can speak about some of the deals we're doing or the issues we're facing with so much expertise and wisdom. And it really does feel beyond like they are they are more experienced or more sort of developed in those areas than I am yet but it doesn't make me feel bad it like mm. it's val- it's validating in a way in a way cuz those people would not be spending any time thinking about geothermal heat pumps if it were not for me right you know yeah. and so it's like wow. i feel um i feel like over time yes i want to get better all the time but i'm comfortable with the fact that i would rather have the ability to attract the people better than I am at any one thing to the problems I think are important. If you're listening to Found, you're probably already super interested in startups and the overall startup ecosystem. So we've got a great deal for you. We're going to offer you 50% off either a one-year or a two-year subscription to Extra Crunch. Extra Crunch is TechCrunch's premium product offering. And when you go there, you'll get deep dive interviews with some of the top founders in the industry. You'll get market maps on specific verticals and some of the most exciting areas of growth in startup land. You'll also get uh, surveys of some of the top VCs in different areas, including different geographies. So you can subscribe to Extra Crunch at extracrunch.com. That's probably the easiest way. Or if you're already on TechCrunch, follow the links for Extra Crunch and you'll get a prompt to subscribe and then just enter that code that's found, the name of this podcast, during checkout and you'll get 50% off on either a one-year or a two-year subscription. It's like, okay, look, this this thing, this whole thing, all this focus, all, I brought, all these intelligent people are here working on the problem because of me, right? And, and maybe they're better at me than in this one area, but like, 
the whole reason they're in the room. That's really is like I never thought of it that way, but that's a great inspiration. Yeah, it's like the ability and... like to understand that you don't have to be the best at everything if you're the best at getting the best. Mm. Right? Like yeah. that is what where your like the best confidence care, can right? come from. Yeah. yeah, right? Like I love that. Yeah. Um th- this brings like I, this brings us kind of back to where we took the the derail off cuz I do want to hear about then how you handle these challenges like like specifically around realizing this isn't the way we're gonna go like was that what was that decision point um you know did, did you have to how did that go with the board how did that go with yeah kind can of you experts? put us in the room yeah, for yeah. that like what you know there was obviously a moment where you say okay this is where we're going like what what was that moment yeah well that moment it's it's almost cliche to tell you what it was exactly like because it so happened that I was literally climbing Mount Shasta uh, with my (laughs) husband, or maybe it was my, I think my dad and my husband. So I was like literally climbing a mountain. I love that. Not to make the metaphor too on the nose, but I was. And then Dan Yates, who is such an important mentor to me and was and is um, chairman of our board, he and I had been sort of grappling with this decision point for the last few weeks before this, but he gives me this call and I see it's from him and it comes through because you get pretty good cell coverage on mountains as it turns out. And so I answered it because, <laughs> you know, it was like an important time for the company. Um, so we were having, basically we, I was climbing a mountain in real life and we were having this conversation about like, we both kind of knew what needed to be done. We just had to call it. Um, and we just decided on that call, yes, we are going to hire installers. We're going to start installing heat pumps ourselves. We're going to like invest in a warehouse. We're going to do it. Um, so we talked about a few of the next steps that that would entail and sort of like, how do you even get started with that? You know, there aren't, there's not this huge community of geothermal installers out there. Right. So we're going to have to like hire people and train them how to do this. And yeah, it was just going to be an undertaking. So we made the decision. It was a July. It was, was July. Um, I think July, twenty eighteen, and we um, we started looking for people. And how did you prioritize that list? Right when you talk about it, like, okay, I need a warehouse now. I need like yeah. to figure out what you need training all of them, geothermal right? <laughs> installers looks it's like. It's not like you need I one need... and then I can do the other. It's like you need exactly. All these things, right? So like, yeah, and like, how do you? Yeah. No, it's so true. I mean, what we did was we tried to borrow the playbook as much as we could from solar because solar companies, you know, often have some indoor or sorry, in-house installation capacity as well. Solar City did. Sunrun has a mixed model, but they certainly have some. And so we found somebody who had experience um, managing a warehouse for, I think, Solar City and brought them in. And then that person helped us just set up sort of the equivalent um, structure for for our business. That did come with some downsides. So like that was a shortcut that was like, give us a color by numbers uh, version of this. (laughs) We don't have to figure everything out from scratch. But of course, like not only did we inherit the good practices, we also inherited the bad practices or the right. ones that don't translate well to geothermal. So we borrowed the playbook and then spent 
more than a year trying to like edit the playbook and figure out <laughs> what actually could be um, transferred and then what we had to think through ourselves. So it was a big, it was a big lift, but we kind of knew that it would be. And I think I can say without a doubt now that if we hadn't done it, we would not exist as a company today. Like I am positive it was existentially important that we made the switch. And at that time, um, was it, was it, did you feel at all like, like you had sometimes passed like at X where you were like, you know what, like I thought this was addressable in this way and that it would scale in this way, but maybe in practice it won't like what did that doubt ever enter into it or did you kind of know like no there's a way forward we just need to to figure it out i know that geothermal can be scaled and it can work and it can be cheaper like i feel very confident in that and i've i think all of my all of my doubt that has existed in the past has been will dandelion be able to figure this out and prove this in time right it's like i know that it can be done but with as with any startup that's venture funded, there's a clock. And so yeah. it's like, yeah, I think fail if if failure were to happen for us, it wouldn't be because of a fundamental problem with geothermal. It would be because there was some misstep that cost us too much time. And so we never got to prove that we could um you know, get it to be on the trajectory yeah. that I believe that is possible. But luckily, like at this stage of the company you know, we're a little bit farther along. Like I think in the early days of a company, that clock is so fast. And speaking of the clock, like you said, like, okay, it took us a year to kind of really iron out that that process. So 2018 to 2019, summer to summer, you're, you're going through that. Are you also fundraising at the same time? And like, what can you tell us like a little bit about how those conversations were going? Like, and, and, and the same the same premise you of have, like you just added some time to the clock right like you have your your yeah, you series b <laughs> <made it longer. laughs> which when this is out yeah it will be uh on the publicly announced like the 30 million dollar series b so um so you're good. yeah you, you, <laughs> you were fundraising but <laughs> this is the it's like right after you raise around it's like this this moment of calm, right? Because you're, um, it's like you're at the beginning where you have all of these, yeah, you have your plans that are well laid and you have the funding to do it. And then you're like, okay, let's execute. You haven't yet. Um, yeah, everything. It's a nice place to be. But to your question of like, what was that fundraising like? So we did raise around in early 2018. It was a very difficult round for me. And I think there are many factors that contributed to that. One, I would say not to be underestimated is just fundraising is so hard for almost everyone. And especially when you're not used to it, I think it uh-huh. like feels even harder. So the fact it was an, thing. yeah, I, I think so. So like the fact it was an early round, it's like, of course it was really hard. Um, <laughs> but I was also um, on another kind of clock because I was pregnant and I was raising, trying to close the round before I gave birth and like that was stressful. And then also it was in this period where we had shown market demand, but we had a lot to figure out about the model. Like it was kind of in flux a little bit, like we've been talking about. Um, uh-huh. It's already such a weird business, right? Like venture capitalists, none of them are like, oh, I've been looking for a geothermal startup. So, <laughs> yeah, right, you right. know, so you're already... Um, 
But a lot of them are piqued by the idea, at least in my experience, they their attention gets piqued with something that they know less about than something that they know a lot about, right? So like that does feel like a little bit of an advantage. But like when you're in that in those funding talks, which I assume took months, can you share with other founders who are listening in, like what what did you feel like the ratio was from kind of like a good response or a bite to maybe no response or a negative response from VCs? Because I think a lot of founders go in and they think like, everybody's gonna love this, you know? Um, and I don't think that's the case for, for most founders. I'm trying to remember back then, but it was probably something like 80% positive non-answer, which actually was a no. Yeah, which is frustrating because you're like, emotionally feeling like, oh, that was positive, And then you don't hear back. That's so annoying. Maybe like um, 10% just like, nope, too out, too far outside of our, you know, purview. And then there were a small, very small number that dug in and like really did seem like they were interested to learn more. Um, and I do think you're right that like people like to learn. So Oh, especially we were from X. So I think like the combination of being from X and being geothermal, but it's like in some, it was an advantage. It opened doors. It gave us credibility that we wouldn't have had, but it also caused us to have a lot of conversations with people who like just wanted to learn, right? Like we were educating them. That was our role. They didn't actually want to like, yeah, come in. And that was frustrating because, you know, especially in the early days, as the CEO, I was trying to run the company, which is a hard company to run, and mm-hmm. all of them are, right? So I'm not saying uh-huh. it was different than yeah. anyone, but like, and trying and trying to have a million conversations with all of these um, investors, it's just it's very hard, and yeah, so you have a lot of different hats to wear, right? Because you're like recruiting, you're trying to solve like long-term strategy issues, you're doing like the day-to-day stuff that you need to do just to keep your team connected to you. And then you're also going out and like fundraising and kind of like spreading yourself so thin. But it's interesting too that you bring up like if you go, and especially in like, um, you know, frontier tech or whatever, like like newer areas, like you can find that people are are, like you said, and I don't, wanted to say that like, I don't know that this is intentional, but I think it is. But like people are using you as due diligence for free, um, you know, because they're, they're like, well, I don't I just need I'm going to take this meeting because I really want to find out about this thing. And I have no intention of putting a check in, but I'm going to make it seem like that's the way that this may go. Right. I agree with you. That's exactly what's happening. But I I relate to it from my experience at X when I was the one parsing through all the ideas to try to find the good ones. And it's like, you do you do need to be educated by the market and like perhaps i mean there's always this like small chance that the meeting could have gone such that it did turn into a check i just think right. i did have one group of investors or like one in, one team that met with me and explicitly said at the end oh like this is too outside of our scope we were just curious to learn more like they literally said those words and I still remember it because I was so angry. I was like, you yeah. made me come the all yeah. the way here and like waste a day. 
and you're just going to tell like it just felt like so disrespectful. That it is, wouldn't have if is. they did it at the beginning of the meeting too, or right. like while they were planning it and been like, hey, listen, this feels way outside of our scope, but we would love to learn more from you. And maybe we can build a connection for something later down the road or whatever. Like that's much more respectful. But no, it was like literally at the end um, that terrible. they said that. And so, and I do think over, you know, over the lifetime of the company, the interactions have become way more high quality. Like I had so many more disrespectful and just wasting my time interactions at the beginning. And that, that makes sense to me too. Like I just, mm-hmm, I don't, right. I don't think it's good, but I get it. It's like <laughs> once your company has proven enough, then people use your time better and you're able right. to screen better, right? You're yeah. like not as desperate. So yeah, those are hard days for sure. From like the you perspective versus then like how other people were treating you or or receiving you, but like on your end, you raised that very difficult round beginning of 2018 and then you've just raised this round. Like what what are your biggest kind of like takeaways? Like what have you learned as someone like just in the process of funding, generically speaking and pitching and talking to investors? Like what have you learned? I have a lot of thoughts of this about this. I think one thing that's been really different is talking about how now I just have high quality people around the table. Just that very fact alone makes it infinitely easier to raise money because like now any potential investor can see the talent that's devoting so much of their time to the idea. And that gives the idea so much more credibility than anything I could say in any presentation. So Um, that probably is the number one change, but also I think I've just, um, learned a lot about what makes an idea investable or attractive to a venture capitalist. Cause going into it, I think I just didn't, I had never had an occasion to really think about that question in my life, you know? Um, but now I can be more strategic with like how I tell the story. And I know, I know um, investors will be interested in what's the true market size. Help me believe that that's really the true market and you're not exaggerating. How will we build a moat, right? Like the defensibility and what does that look like over time? And then of course, like diving, I think one, one of the other nice things about being further along is we have more data on what is the customer acquisition cost? What is the um, margin on each job? You know, like how do we see that developing over time and how has it developed over time? So like I can just, I think I have, certainly I have a lot more learning to do. You know, I won't, I don't think I'm, um, I'm not quite as good at pitching as I would like to be eventually but I've come such a far, a far way just from being more thoughtful about what makes an investment attractive, what are other attractive companies and why are they attractive, and how do I apply some of those concepts to uh, geothermal heating for homes, which is you don't strike me as you don't strike me as someone who has ever done really learning, to be honest, which I think is also like a a trait, like a. a quality of a founder that like yeah. just has to and be successful there, founders you know? yeah but i do think i think it's I, I have a hypothetical which is like would you would you rather know what you know now and go back to 
early stage pitching or continue on later stage again like x anything to do with actually what happens with companies and whatever um be- i'm just curious because you know you said a lot of that stuff you weren't aware but on the other hand when you're pitching at early stage you're pitching on the idea right and you don't yeah it's just different circumstances the numbers don't all. necessarily have to add up then because there are no numbers right so it's it's yeah, kind it's of like, like more art than math yeah with the early stage it's making an impression and making yourself look like somebody to take a bet on. Um, And so I do think market size is still really important and showing a trend in the industry. Like for us, even even compared to four years ago, the momentum around electrification is is amazing. Like we're seeing San Francisco ban new gas hookups. Denver, I think, recently banned new gas hookups. You know, like um, just... Yeah, the moment the Biden got elected, like there have been so many world <laughs> things that have happened that have made our company look like it's at the right place at the right time. Right. We're solving a problem that everyone is now interested in solving. Um, so that's that's amazing. And I think helps uh, it helps to have that in an early stage. If you can just show like this is a wave that's happening independent of my company. But here's why if this works, we will catch this wave. And then make sure the market size is big enough because it's, yeah, you like if you're limited by market size, it's just going to be a really hard path. Yeah. Um, and then I, I think the reason it. the team, oh, oh, I was just going to say, like, I think the reason everyone's like, oh, the team matters, the team matters is because it really does. Like, I think mm-hmm. if uh, certainly if I were going to put money on an idea succeeding or failing, that's the first thing I would look at, too. Like, do I trust that this person will give it the best shot that it has. And I think like as a first time founder, that was certainly a hard thing for me because I didn't have a track record and, um, you know, I was an unknown. So I had X, which was helpful. Like I think it would have been much harder to fundraise without having spun out of X. But I think that's just a hard, a hard thing that incubators help with like a Y Combinator stamp of approval. Like I think that's a lot of what it gets you. Yeah. You mentioned too, like, you know, like the, the having the people now around the table and it, I think of the, the outside expertise, no matter what form it takes, as long as it's like uh, it held in high regard generally, like is, is such a huge thing that especially a lot of early stage companies just don't have or don't know to have. Right. Like you think, Oh, my idea is so great. It's going to sell itself. And I could just walk in and be like, here it's it is. It's a domino thing. Like getting that first domino to fall, I think is really hard. But it, it like, you know, once you can get it and you get that, st- you know, like five stamps of these people who, who have trust and credibility, things go so differently from that point on. Great. Well, I, I think we're actually almost out of time, but I think that's a good uh, natural place to end this anyway. I think... Uh, it's been really fantastic talking to you, Kathy. I, I, I'm so thrilled that you came on and, and gave us this. Uh, I, you're very open with your answers, and I think us and our audience will appreciate that. But uh, yeah, thanks very much. Yeah, thank you guys. It's been really, it's been a fun conversation for me, and I don't often get to talk to people who are interested in these questions, you know. So it's, it's nice for me actually to reflect on all of it and. Um, everything that's happened in the past four years. It's crazy. 
All right, so that was our chat with Kathy Hanoon from Dandelion Energy. And Jordan, I don't know about you, but I'm already digging holes in my backyard just to get to that sweet, sweet geothermal energy. And I'm going to just pipe it right into my house. I think that's <laughs> how it works. <laughs> oh, I feel warm and toasty just thinking about it. No, I mean, I, I admittedly was not an expert at the beginning of the show, but I do feel like one now. I felt like that was a really clear explanation of what exactly this industry is trying to do and we got into the weeds on some of the kind of like pitfalls of it as well and and her approach and strategy in terms of scaling so i had a blast she's great kathy kathy wins Kathy does win. And I, I really appreciated that she was willing to talk to us about, you know, when the approach was not working quite as intended and they had to make a pivot. And it was a considerable one in terms of their overall business model. But, it, you know, it appears to have worked out. You know, they're fresh off of their recent funding and, you know, now well in the midst of that kind of model. And it seems to be going well for them. So that's great. Yeah. And she learned about that on a mountain. She, she On a mountain, she had to learn how to climb a mountain that's right that's so right. symbolic so yeah yeah meta found is hosted by myself TechCrunch news editor daryl etherington and TechCrunch managing editor jordan crook we are produced and mixed by ishad kulkarni and TechCrunch's audio products are managed by henry pickavet our guest this week was kathy hanoon co-founder and president of dandelion energy you can find us on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and on Twitter at twitter.com slash found. You can also email us at found at techcrunch.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.